Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, J.D. Hansen. Hi, J.D. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. J.D. is the Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Information Systems at Code42. J.D.'s passion for security started gathering steam with her first role as a security advisor at Deloitte. After five years and a huge amount of travel, J.D. landed at Target Corporation. She advanced through the ranks of Target's security team over the course of eight years, during which time she built many of the security programs and functions, focusing on compliance, risk management, insider threat assessments, and more that still exist today. In addition to her day job, JD is also the founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization Building Without Borders, which serves those in poverty-stricken areas throughout the world through housing services. In her spare time, you can find JD working for her nonprofit and enjoying time with her husband and three kids and spending time on the lake. So JD, why don't we get started? How did you get started with security? Yeah, so my entry into security started a very, very long time ago. It actually started in high school for me. I was always very interested in technology. And so I had a technology coordinator for my high school who kind of took me under his wing and helped me learn certain aspects of networking. And what I ended up doing was I was working for him for free a couple days after school each week where we would set up computer labs in order to save money for our school district. He would buy all the different parts of the computer. He would purchase them. They would get shipped to our school. And part of my job was to assemble the computer for the computer lab. And so I did that. I helped him set up certain networks as part of the work that I did for him. And as part of just everything, he took a lot of time to kind of mentor me, teach me things about technology I I didn't know. And that started sparked kind of a a deeper interest. And so from there, I went to school for computer information systems. And then after that, you know, took a took a job for Deloitte, which was my first kind of real information security job out of high school. That's so much fun to hear. You know, we talked about this earlier, you and I have a similar experience in high school, I was also fixing and building computers but I was building them for schools and, um, you know, kindergarten, first graders, second graders with old and broken computers that were donated to us from other companies. So it definitely gave me a very hands-on experience and seems like it got you that hands-on experience and kind of sparked that interest, which got you into technology, which is, which is great to hear. So let's talk a little bit about Deloitte uh, consulting. You know, that's something you and I both have in common. That's how we started early on in our careers. I know that consulting has really allowed me to grow and get to where I am today, but would love to understand your perspective. You know, what is it about consulting that you enjoyed so much and how did you get you where you are today? Yeah, you know, coming out of college, kind of an interesting tidbit, I, I ended up taking a job for Microsoft 
first and, you know, thought, thought I was going to work for Microsoft. And then within that same month, I took the job for Microsoft. I also got engaged and then Deloitte, which was in the same city as my fiance, said, well, why don't you come and just check it out, knowing that I had a job for Microsoft. And so I flew to Minneapolis. Um, I interviewed with the Deloitte partner team. And at the end of my interviews, they said, here's your offer letter. Why don't you come and work at Deloitte? And because I was starting kind of a new life with my current husband, I said, yeah, that's probably a good idea to be engaged and get married to someone living in the same city. Um, And so turned down the job at Microsoft, came to Minneapolis and started working at Deloitte. And at this time, it was, you know, very much like the start of all the work that we did related to computer controls tied to Sarbanes-Oxley. And I absolutely loved it. I love the consulting role. I love the variety of jumping from different company to different company, getting an understanding of company cultures and how they work and the nuances between manufacturing and retail and healthcare. And it was I was having the time of my life. I, you know, got some really awesome experiences through the work that I did at Deloitte, you know, traveling overseas and traveling to, you know, West Coast, East Coast, and just understanding how even geographical regions, how companies operate differently. And just had a, a tremendous amount of experience during that first gig at Deloitte. I think that that kind of springboarded my career 100%. They say that, you know, in in consulting, you're working pretty much two times what everybody else is working because you're just, you know, you're you're a billable resource. And so you're working a lot of hours. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't continue it and still be able to have a family that I wanted to be around. And so I was traveling way too much. And we had our first daughter and I knew I wanted to continue working absolutely, but be in town more. And so it was wonderful because the the team at Deloitte allowed me to stay in Minneapolis for a period of time. They put me on the Target account. So I was working for Deloitte, but on the Target project. And that led me to my my time at Target, which was also fantastic part of my career. So when, whenever anyone talks about Target, a lot, for a lot of us, that big breach that happened comes to mind, primarily because so many people are affected. I was affected personally, too. Would love to understand from you, uh, as your experience and, and exposure to Target, can you tell us how you worked on building the security program and in particular anything you remember around how that breach kind of changed the security program uh, sort of overnight? Yeah. So coming to to Target, you know, one of my mentors describes me kind of as a first responder, where if there's a lot of issues, like I will be there and be the first to raise my hand and say, yes, like I'll help out. And the my my first year at Target, that's kind of what it was about. Um, we had a lot of issues. We weren't yet PCI compliant. We had a lot to build. And so for me, it was just an incredible experience because I was able to be part of so many of the foundational things that still exist today, building the compliance program and some of the vulnerability management program aspects and you know the, the actual external side cyber threat pieces. And so, you know, that that was incredible. Um, we got to 
the point where Target was fairly stable in their security program and fairly mature. And, you know, with, I think anybody in security knows you can be incredibly mature or incredibly sophisticated security program and still experience a breach. And that was the case with the Target team. We went through the the breach. It was one of those experiences where you never want to go through it again, but you're incredibly grateful for what you learned by going through it. That lasted honestly like a year. Um, you know, the the heat the heated part was a solid couple months, but we essentially went through a transition over a period of a year where we had, you know, lots of board oversight, we had lots of executive oversight, we were given lots of money to buy anything that we needed to buy in order to prevent this exact same thing from happening the next year. We brought in a lot of external talent and through that period I was incredibly fortunate to be one of the only people who was promoted that was there before and was promoted internally as part of the team and super grateful for that role and for people to have seen me in a way that they were going to give me the shot to move up at Target. And so I worked for the current CISO there now and I had a lot of scope, but I was to a point where we were over the breach and we had lots of money and lots of people doing lots of things. And I was just ready for a change where I wanted to get a little bit more hands-on and I wanted to get back into building and I wanted to build a program again. And so kind of started looking not really serious. And that's where Code 42 kind of landed in my lap. And that's where I am today. Excellent. Definitely want to learn more about Code 42 and all the things that you're doing. But before that, I kind of want to ask you for some advice, Uh, any advice you can give other leaders in the space you know, oftentimes, just like at Target, you know, you can have a mature program, and you can kind of get comfortable with the status quo in terms of how things are going and believe that you're not going to be breached or have any issues because you've attained a certain level of maturity. Is there anything you would advise other leaders uh, on how to not get comfortable and how to kind of think about the problem differently if they ever get into a situation where they feel like they're getting too comfortable? This is a great question. And, you know, comfort is like the enemy for security professionals. Getting comfortable is scary. And so I think for for other security leaders out there, the two things I would give as advice to not get comfortable is, number one, for sure, have a red team and listen to them. You know, we have two people at Code42 who function as our red team, and they come up with some really fantastic attacks against our company. Some of these they take three months to carry out because they're really sophisticated and they're patient and they wait. And then once they're done with the entire engagement, we learn so much and we change things and things that our blue team didn't think about before we're addressing. And so make sure you're really thinking about like how to leverage your red team and you know not not you know a lot of red teams are leveraged by doing like a monthly kill chain exercise that's fantastic but i i would leverage your red team in a larger engagement something that is essentially the most likely attack against your organization and force them to think really creatively on how they would carry that out The second thing that I would recommend is to do a really regular threat assessment. I think security leaders, sometimes we get stuck in very straightforward compliance assessments ongoing. And compliance assessments are fantastic. 
um, and they uncover a lot of risk. But at the end of the day, you're starting with a list of requirements rather than starting with what could go wrong at my company. And sometimes those things don't always match. And so for us at Cofer A2, we do the traditional controls assessment, maturity assessment. We're using NIST and ISO and all those great frameworks. But in addition to that, we take a day every single year where we bring in different leaders from different parts of the organization. We leverage our prod organi- our R&D organization quite extensively to bring in security experts from that team into our group. And we spend a day going through a really deep threat assessment. And this is a brainstorming day. It's a day where we think about all the terrible things that could happen to our company. What do we have in place? What do we not have in place? And from there, we have a laundry list of things that we go after to make sure that we improve security across the board for our company. Thank you. That's that's actually really good advice. Uh, Thank you so much for that level of insight there. So let's talk a little bit about Code 42. Can you share how different is it to be a security leader in a SaaS organization versus your previous role at, at Target and other companies that you've been involved in? Yeah, so it, it it's kind of an interesting question because I, I at Code42, I wear two hats. I have the CIO hat and then I have the CISO hat. And the CISO role in every organization is largely the same and varies with what you're trying to protect. And so, you know, at, at Target retail organization, you're trying to protect your guest data and some of your secrets related to sales and supply chain and whatnot. At Code 42, I have a really challenging security role in the sense that I'm protecting some of the biggest companies' data. And so that that's a very heightened security role that we play at Code42. You know, we're protecting our customers' data and our customers are some of the largest companies in the world. The the CIO role too is is very different. When you're when you're talking about a large company, retail, healthcare, manufacturing, you traditionally have a lot of a lot of infrastructure, a lot of data centers, a lot of tech that has been there for a long time. At Cofrey 2, a SaaS application, a software application company, it's very different. You know, we're we're very startup focused. We we don't have the traditional infrastructure and data centers that another company would have were smaller, more nimble. And so the CIO role is is incredibly different. Um, whereas the security role changes with what you protect, the CIO role can be kind of night and day compared to large traditional company and new SaaS company. Um, the CIO role, I never really aspired to have the CIO role. Um, and it's one that I'm finding is incredibly fulfilling. At Cofrey 2 it is very much about choosing the right applications that really catapult our business forward and enable all of our different departments. And it feels like a very strategic role for the company. And that that's stuff that I absolutely love and enjoy and feel like I have the right skill set for. And so I'm I'm having a, a blast with that role. No, that's that's very insightful. So given your your approach to building a program around security, was there any lessons learned early on or were there anything that you would recommend others to use as a building block as they get started on thinking about security if it's the first time they're building a program? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're if it's the first time you're building a security program at the company, chances are there's already security events taking place. And I guess my advice would be find those and fix those first. At Code42, when I first started, um, we had a lot of email phishing issues happening. We had somebody who had clicked on a link and provided a password to payroll information. Um, we had the CEO and the CFO were getting phished pretty much on an hourly basis. Like it, it was really the volume of those emails and that the magnitude of that risk was really high when we started. And so that's where we started. We tried to fix a lot of the gaps first, and then we took a pause and then we dove in and we said, hey, where are we? Let's baseline where we are and what's most important to go after next. And so whenever you're starting out building a program, there's going to be things that are obvious. And those are the things that are you're already having security events on. Just tackle those, get those, get those done. Those are quick wins. After that, pause, maybe do kind of a benchmarking assessment and figure out where to go then. But I guess my advice would be to do that pause and benchmarking when things become a bit less clear as to what to go after. I think a lot of leaders want to come in and do that benchmarking thing and then say, hey, fishing is the big thing and I got to tackle that so that they get that quick win. I, I would have the opposite advice. And I would say, if you know what's broken and you're hearing about it, that's where you start. So we might have different uh, sentiment on these. So I typically recommend a lot to a lot of leaders to do the benchmarking early on, especially when they're taking on their role. And the reasoning behind that is because at least they can objectively then show their leadership what they acquired when they started. Uh, so that's an approach that I've been thinking about. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that still doesn't add value if you do a benchmarking early on to at least show your leadership to be able to explain, okay, look, this is what I'm inheriting. And if, if it's a mess, it's a mess. But at least you can say, look, I inherited a mess. And then I took it from here to the next level. Yeah, that I mean, it's a it's an interesting point. I guess if if you have something to prove to your leadership, I would agree with you. I think that in my role and the way I operate, like I'm, I'm given kind of the, the respect and the commitment right away. And so I didn't, I didn't need to prove anything. Um, I kind of had that. I don't, I don't need to prove anything to my leadership team or my CEO, my boss. He knows, he trusts me. And so I probably have a little bit of an advantage in that, in that regard. Um, and so I, I can certainly see where having that benchmarking and essentially showing kind of what you're dealt and what you're doing with it um, could be valuable. For me, I, I was fortunate enough where I could hit the ground running and address certain things immediately. Well, well, JD, you have some street creds that we didn't necessarily talk about, but it definitely helps that you are considered one of the top 100 women in cybersecurity for 2020. So I'm sure that helps too in building trust and rapport uh, with your leadership team that you definitely know what you're doing. So first of all, congratulations on that award. And I just wanted to make sure that um, I mentioned that uh, in 2020, you were named Cyber Defense Magazine's list of top 100 women in cybersecurity. So it's a big accomplishment. Uh, can you want to tell us a little bit about that and how you got there and, and any, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, you didn't tell me you were going to embarrass me. <laughs> bring that up. Um, no, I mean, I, I surround myself with just some fantastic people that I've worked with for a really long time. And I would not at all be where I am without all the incredible security leaders that I've been working with for so long. And so, you know, it's an honor to receive that award. And, you know, for for me, it's an honor to receive it as a woman in this space where there's not a ton of women in this space. And so, you know, just to be just to be a name where other women can see, hey, she did it, I can do it is is really humbling. No, I'm sure it's very exciting. So given your depth and breadth in the security space, I would love to understand what you see as current trends in application security specifically. Is there anything you can share that you see today that's maybe different from 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Yeah, they, there's a lot going on in application security. First and foremost, the importance of application security today has never been greater. It's probably where we spend a majority of our time in the security program because that, that is where a majority of our risk lies. For us, there's, there's a couple kind of shifts that I'm seeing that we're paying a lot of attention to and we're adjusting within my program. The first being kind of this rise of serverless concept. And so if, if you think about that, that means nothing more than an application can be built in a way where we don't have to tie to all the underlying OS database aspects of it, putting a lot more of the attack surface at the application layer. And so for us, we're doing that internally. We're doing that within our product. We're doing that within some of the stuff that we're buying. And so we are very focused on like, how do we protect that application layer and do all the right things, knowing the attack surface is essentially there in this new world. The other kind of interesting thing that that we're focused on that we're doing is and I think this has been going on for a while where we were really trying to shift left in the development cycle and get our application security resources embedded very early on in the development cycle. And so for us, we have um, we built probably about a year ago now, maybe it's a little longer. We built a standalone product application lifecycle security team, and each of the members on that team is embedded within our R&D organization, and they're part of the scrum teams, and they are listening in on some of the story mapping, they're bringing up security concerns, they're trying to embed kind of user testing and some of the scanning very, very early on so that we don't get to the end of a sprint and we have something that's rolling out and it has application security flaws in it. And so I think the more you can do that where you're seeing as kind of a partner and you're embedding yourself early on, the better. A lot of companies are, are really doing a good job of that now, but I think it's just a trend that's going to continue where, you know, we, we've never, security's never been embedded before. The last couple of years, like we're starting to be embedded, but we're still we're still the outsider. And now we're starting to get weaved into being part of the team. What would you say is the biggest challenge in application security or focusing on application security? Is it people, technology, process, all of the above, any specific area that you think is the biggest challenge? Gosh, speed. Um, so keeping up is is really the biggest challenge. So 
if you think of it, you're you're always going to have, you know, five developers to your one security person, and maybe even the ratio is going to be much higher. But, you know, developers can, especially our R&D team, we are developing product so quickly. And for our security team, it's challenging because you're constantly trying to keep up with what is it that we're rolling out this week? You know, what is the development team actually, what's the language that they're developing it in? Do we have the right controls in place? Are we thinking about the right things? Are we scanning at the right times? Things like that. So I think speed overall is going to be a constant challenge for security teams. Well, you bring up something that I want to explore a little more. So is there a ratio that you would recommend or is there a ratio that you feel works well of developers to security professionals in an organization? Yeah, the the ratio is a little bit of a misnomer because ultimately I would just love for the developers to be security developers. I think that's utopia <laughs> um, where we, where again, you know, we, we've never been included in the development teams before. Now we're starting to be included, but we're still, we're still this, the team over here and you're the team over here. I think utopia is when these teams are together and they're thought of as one and the security developer is the same as the regular developer. Security development is the ultimate goal. Yeah, no, I think security really needs to be sort of an inherent quality of your software, right? It's And the developers need to have some level of ownership on the security of the application that they're developing. And I think there's a lot of things we need to do better, especially around the formal education that we have. It seems like a common theme I talk to a lot of our guests is that I think our formal education, even our textbooks need to have coding examples that don't have vulnerabilities in them in the first place. Exactly. Right? So uh, we have a long way to go there, but I think we're getting there slowly but surely. So JD, why don't we switch tracks from the technical stuff to some of the great work that you're doing with your nonprofit? Can you share with us a little bit more about, about your nonprofit and what you guys are doing? Yeah, thank you so much for asking about it. So I, I started a nonprofit. It's called Building Without Borders. And the, the goal of the nonprofit is to really to improve a certain community in the Dominican Republic, but doing it in a way where we're empowering the people there. And so we are working in a community called San Cristobal in the Dominican Republic, and we're building homes. And we're doing this alongside the church. The homes, they're not perceived as they're coming from the Americans. They're perceived as they're a gift from the church and that the, the homes as they're built are being worked on by the families that live in them. And so there's a very much of an empowering aspect to building the home and finishing the home with the family. This year has been interesting. We typically have about 10 trips that go down there and work with the church and work with the family. And this year, our first trip was in March. I think it was scheduled to leave March 20th. And um, we got our board together on the 15th of March and we canceled that trip, obviously, just for reasons of COVID and travel. And so the, this year has been, it's looked very different than most. We are still doing food deliveries in the area, and so we're fundraising for a big food delivery the 1st of November and the 1st of December. But the, again, we're doing everything we can to continue to improve and develop that community, but do it in a way where we're not handing things out, we're instead empowering the community to kind of take control of their destiny. 
yeah, it, it's something that I, I've been in that area since gosh, 2003, I think. Um, and it, it kind of is, has a spot in my heart that will never kind of go away. And I, I feel like I'll always be helping in that particular part of the world. Thank you so much for all of that. You know, me personally coming from a very poor country, I, I'm originally from Bangladesh. I know what a huge impact all of these nonprofits and initiatives have, especially when you can empower the community. So definitely, you know, salute you for all the work you do. And, and it's really exciting to see that. One last question. I know that you love spending time with your family on the lake. Can you share with us what do you guys do? What are some fun activities that you all enjoy uh, as a family? Yeah, we, um, so both my husband and I grew up on lakes. Um, we're both originally from Northern Minnesota. And so it's just something that we've kind of carried to our kids. So we, we have a place right now on Gull Lake in Brainerd and every chance we get, we're up there. We just have so much fun taking the pontoon boat out or taking the boat out and surfing or skiing or kneeboarding or tubing. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you get up there and it it feels like you're in a zip code that only delivers relaxation. It's it's a really great break for both my husband and I who work quite a bit and for our kids to just step away from the busyness of life and get some family time. That's fantastic. Well, JD, thank you so much for your time. You know, you are obviously a great leader in your space and you're so humble. It was such a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you. And hopefully once this pandemic is over, we get to meet in person. I'm sure I'll run into at one of the conferences or one of the security events. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.